Hello, everyone. This is Rick with the CyberPro Podcast. I'm excited for my guest today. Remember, this is about five questions in a little less than nine minutes because hackers never sleep. First question, Kane, who are you and what do you do? Hi, my name is Kane McGladry. I am the Advisory Practice Manager for Cybersecurity at Ascent Solutions. I'm also a senior member of the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers and an Executive Advisory Board member on TAG Northwest, which is a local uh, technology advocacy group, and also the uh, CS Hub Online, which is a cybersecurity media publication. Um, I've been working in cybersecurity since Oh dear. Uh, since we called it information security, actually, I think some of your viewers will probably appreciate that distinction. That's amazing. Yes, I remember those days as well. Question number two, what's the best thing about being a cyber expert? The best thing? You know, there's a few. Um, I, I think though, if I really come down to it, the, the, the absolute best thing is getting up every day and knowing that you're making a difference that knowing that your actions that you take in a given day are going to help people and, and that you're going to help people, you're going to help businesses, you're going to help communities, and that you really are. The thing is, coming from an information security background, it was always often, often relegated to the background. It was never a foreground activity. It was something that was underappreciated. It was something that was underfunded. And as we've moved into our modern world, the ability to make a difference by protecting a business or by protecting the data that's stored in that business of uh, individuals, of, of medical data, of credit card information, all of that is just so rewarding. And it's something I think also that those of us who've been in the profession for a while, um, we take it outside of our normal day job and we help our friends and we help our families also um, both to understand what's actionable things that they can do um, in terms of defending their own privacy and, and in terms of protecting their own data, but also in terms of things that, yeah, they just can't do anything about. Like there's some existential threats out there that individuals got nothing you can do. Sure, you can freeze your credit card uh, report. I'm totally an advocate for that. But at the same time, that's not going to stop uh, threat actors from exfiltrating your credit card data off of a manky website, right? It's just at some point you have to go, this is how much I can do as an individual. The rest of this is outside of my sphere of control. That's wonderful. I always like when I, I'm talking to folks who put people first, I think I think we as professionals forget that cybersecurity is there to protect people and then mm -hmm. business operations, and then you can move down the path. So, so that's wonderful. Kane, question number three, cybersecurity, it's a buzzword, right? Everyone's saying it's top of mind, top concern. What does that mean to you? So I think the, the, the recognition on the part of businesses these days is that you can't, um, you can't magic this away it's not a project that's one and done. It's not a product that you go buy. It's not a, a thing that you can just, you know, check your box. I think that's the, the main thing. And as we've moved to a point of maturity in the past, well, let's call it a decade, I think businesses have started to recognize that you can either, um, you know, you, you have to take a risk view of the world. And there are certain risks that you're going to be able to mitigate. There are certain risks that you're going to have to accept. And there are certain risks that you're going to have to uh, transfer to insurance. But in the past decade, at the same time, we've 
um, we've moved to a recognition that you cannot just transfer everything to insurance. And I think uh, the, the court case right now with Mondelez versus Zurich is certainly informing that. And I'm looking forward to the jurisprudence on that to find out like, hey, so is ransomware that is perpetrated by a nation state that is attributed to a nation state that was done by an external entity that, that um, I think it was US Cybercom that actually did the attribution. How much of a material effect does that have on your insurance policy, right? There, there's definite like an intersection going on here where we're all operating in a larger space um, and there are not, there are a lot of shades of gray available. And if you don't take a risk view, um, it's not adequate. The other thing I think that businesses have started to see is that compliance does not um, equal security. It is possible to be entirely compliant. And um, I look at the, the tragedies that have happened, <clears throat> excuse me, this year in healthcare and the clients that I'm privileged to serve. And it is awful when ransomware threat actors will attack hospitals that are providing a critical service and they do it because they know they're gonna get paid. They know that, there, that the hospital could be HIPAA compliant and that they will pay because uh, their lives at risk. And sorry, that, that just, it hits me when I talk about it because it is, it, is, it is awful. And again, going back to that insurance point, what's even um, worse than that is ransomware threat actors these days, and forgive me if I'm harping on them, but they're top of mind at the moment, um, they will go and uh, gather insurance policy data on uh, insured, and that way they can actually set the ransom based on how much they know they'll get paid. And then finally, they will ransomware the insurance company. So I think that anybody who, uh, those recent Excellian breaches that occurred, um, where the Excellian file transfer appliance was, uh, the data were stolen. If you were one of those insurance companies, go do a threat check on your environment right now. Like go get hard into threat hunting because it means you probably have threat actors operating in your environment. And it's not a question of if, but when. Um, so again, it's, uh, it's that recognition that cybersecurity really can have a material effect both on, on businesses, but also on people. Thank you for the deep and, and profound response. I, I, I think that compliance has driven cybersecurity to a point where I don't know that cybersecurity is helping the business as much as it should be. And, and for me, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. We need compliance, but it's always late. It's always behind the eight ball, right? And I'd be curious, you know, just if you have, you know, a quick thought on it, how can we make being compliant be better? So I think we need, as business leaders, I think we need to tie compliance to outcomes that are material and are measurable. If I'm an, if I'm an executive, it's a former CISO, I know if I want to, if I spend a dollar, I need to get a buck 20 back, right? I want to see a, a reward on that. And so I think as we look at compliance and we look at risks, if you do a crosswalk across your compliance and regulatory and statutory obligations and burden that you have to meet, I think that you can then tie those to specific cybersecurity initiatives and also privacy initiatives. Uh, and the tie up between privacy and cybersecurity has to happen. You can't have a, a a DPO and a CISO not talk. Uh, you're just gonna have a bad day at that point from a regulatory perspective. Um, ultimately, you need to have that recognition that cybersecurity underpins those compliance requirements and that you cannot do one without the other and you can't just 
throw it all in insurance and hope for the best. <laughs> nice. You've talked a lot about, you know, just about your take on the industry. You've given a lot of insights, but question number four is what piece of insight do you really want to share with, with our experts? I think the, the recognition I've had is I, I read a market report that said we'd spent $30 billion in VC funding and angel investor funding in the past decade. And I did, a, you know, I just did a quick check and see, okay, did the number of breaches go up or did they go down or did it, and they went up over the same time frame. We have, we have $30 billion or more, that was last year's report, into spending and we keep doing the same thing and we keep expecting different results. And that's actually the Alcoholics Anonymous uh, definition of insanity. And that's what our industry is doing. I think that we need to really bring in um, new and diverse viewpoints into our industry. And if the pandemic has shown us one thing, it's that as employers, we can hire outside of our zip code. I think that that's something that the, our, our jobs in cybersecurity, we have the privilege of working remote. We don't have to go to an office. Um, and as such, I think that employers really need to look at this as a meritocracy and say, okay, so, you know, I want to go get the, the best talent at the top end of the scale, irrespective of zip code, but on the entry level jobs, I think that something we need to keep in mind is that cybersecurity jobs are ultimately middle-class jobs. And those aren't, those are jobs that are not going away. These are jobs that if you're, if you're considering a career, this is not a job that is going to be lifted and shifted overseas. This is not a job that's going to be automated out of existence. Um, this is a job that is going to be here, part of the landscape as a career path. And it's attainable. Like if you go to, uh, just to rep my neighbors, um, Whatcom, if you go to Whatcom College, you can take a two-year degree right now and you can get a job as soon as you graduate. There are very few um, jobs out there that really have that uh, that ability to move straight from college into gainful employment into a middle-class job. Um, I think the only other onus there that we need to do, and it's, it's again, that definition of insanity is HR. There needs to be a, um, a, a, a frank conversation between HR's view of what an ideal candidate is and what an acceptable candidate is. Because if there's one other problem we've seen around diversity in cybersecurity is that the way the job descriptions are written tend to attract um, people who are going to wing it. And more often than not, that's men. Women will read a job description. They're published statistical research backing me up on this point. They'll read a job description and they'll say, I don't actually have uh, for an entry level job. I don't have my CISSP in a decade of experience for an entry level internship. Uh, whereas apparently a lot of, again, just going to publish psychological research, men will go, eh, why not? I'll apply for that. That behavior right there is, is affecting um, our diversity in our workforce. And it's also affecting the number of candidates who look at this and say, hey, there's a job for that. Right? There's a job for me there. There's a, there's a view I can take there. There's a way I can help my neighbors and my family and my friends. That's wonderful. I'm going to add a quick side question and then we'll get moving on to the final question. My side question is, as people come into the workforce, you know, you you can get the certifications, you can take the exams, but you can't get the experience right out of the gate. Although I would argue that all of us that have had grown up around a computer have experience in some way, shape or form. What is something as a leader that you just absolutely think you need to look for, even if there's not a cert, not an educational component behind it? There's probably a couple things that I look for. Um, 
The first one that I look for as a macro is uh, 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 coming out of the service. People who have been who have served, people who have been in the Air Force or the Marine Corps or the Army or the Navy or another branch, I think they understand security implicitly. They understand mission implicitly, and so it is very easy as an employer to take somebody who's coming out of a military uh, to talk with their local veterans employment representative and to just bring them in and know that they're gonna exceed expectations, that they understand the mission and they're gonna go get it done. Um, I think that's a great, uh, as an employer, I think that's a really great workforce to tap into. The other thing that I look for outside of people who have served would be uh, talent and aptitude and really a willingness to learn. I don't need somebody for an entry level, uh, an associate level job to um, have that certification. They need to demonstrate that they've got the skills to go get it done. They need to, and, and these are things that you can show on your resume. If you're um, taking, uh, if you wanna get into say a red team, if you're taking capture the flag events, if you're not even like winning them, but at least you're doing them, that's great. If you are looking and getting onto a blue team, if you can talk about firewall, you've got set up at home, or maybe you've got a raspberry pie, my pie hole at home. Talk to me about that, right? So show that aptitude because some of those things are non-trivial to set up. And it's that willingness to learn that is so essential in our industry because it's not a static industry. It's not like you can learn this one job to do it the one way and you know, do it that way for the rest of your career. Shoot, there's stuff that you have to learn every day. And the stuff that we were doing two years ago is probably way out of date. That's... That's exactly what I think people need to hear. So thank you for that. Question number five, what's your favorite piece of retro technology that just makes you smile? Pinball. Pinball is so easy. I'm, I'm fortunate. I'm in Bellingham, Washington. We have a, a pinball bar here. Uh, and with the pandemic starting to cycle down, it's actually reopening, which I'm looking forward to because pinball is one of those games that you you just, there's, I've played video game versions of it. Heck, I've played pinball in VR. There is something tactile about that that uh, just makes me grin every time. Nice. Do you have a favorite pinball game? I do actually. Haunted House from 1984. It was a four level pinball machine. Played it last time at the uh, Pinball Museum in Las Vegas, which is the best quarter I've ever spent in Las Vegas. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. Kane, you did it. More than five questions. This was awesome. Thank you so much for being on the CyberPro podcast. Everyone check out other episodes. Have a great day. Thanks, Rick.